Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you here from Schloss Elmau in beautiful Bavaria at the Munich Strategy Forum where I'm talking to President Thomas Ilves, who is the former president of Estonia and is now a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We're going to talk about the digital revolution and how it's changing foreign policy, the world of international relations, and what it means for Europe's role within it. President Ilves, you were one of the big evangelists for the digital world when you were president of Estonia. I think your government was the first paperless government in Europe, and you're now sitting in the heart of Silicon Valley. Can you maybe start by telling us a bit about how the digital revolution has changed foreign policy and international relations? Well, I, I begin by saying it's changing everything. We are amidst this revolution. It is, first and foremost, changing the way we live, but it is at the same time changing power relations in ways that we have not really even fully grasped. So that, for example, my little country can be a powerhouse playing a role in the world that would have been unimaginable in earlier times. At the same time, what we don't realize is that these little events like Estonia playing a larger role in the world, a minor thing compared to the total transformation we are in the middle of, and that this will affect everything that we do. And I liken this to, or even I would say that it is the most transformative technological revolution since Gutenberg invented the printing press, gave us all the opportunity to read books, but which basically also led shortly thereafter to the first ideologized war, the Thirty Years' War, which was probably the, or was, the bloodiest conflict in the European continent, if we look at proportion of the continent that died in that. That would not have happened without the book radicalizing people to different factions. The same thing is true with technology today. China would not be this incredible powerhouse that it is today, playing the role it is playing in the world, were it not for technology. We see that the U.S., which has been or had been the leading power in the world in general, but also in uh, in all matters digital, is now actually confronted with a genuine rival that in many ways, from my experience, is even is far ahead of the United States in the implementation of this digital revolution in good ways and bad. And in this sort of new duopoly of power, all centered around digital technology, uh, Europe doesn't really exist. Uh, we know that of the top 20 IT companies in the world, 11 are U.S. companies, nine are Chinese. There are no European companies in that top 20, which should make us think in Europe about what is it that we're doing or what is it that we're not doing? And this has been my point, trying to shape, shake Europeans to get out of their traditional views of security and foreign policy, their traditional views of how the economy works. All of that is very difficult because we have this uh, major disconnect 
between people doing policy and people doing all of the innovation in general. But in the United States, there is a disconnect between the people who are doing digital and the people who are doing policy. In Europe, you could say there is no disconnect because people are not doing digital. And so it's only policy. And my frustration continue, continually is that people doing policy in Europe, in the absence of any strong digital world here, don't get it, don't understand how far behind we have fallen. So you think that President Macron is right to say that Europe is disappearing as a geopolitical player in the world? Well, perhaps not in the sense he thinks about it, because I've not seen any real European initiatives on on digital transformation coming from him. So I think we're talking about slightly different things, though I would agree that Europe is disappearing. But I think a large part of it, in fact, has to do with the fact that we have not really grabbed the uh, technological bull by the horns and are engaged, when we do deal with technology, with uh, fairly parochial matters. Like privacy. Oh, I wouldn't say it's parochial. Well, I would argue that it is limited. What do you think grabbing the bull by the horns would mean? I mean, in China, the way they did it was to have a, a kind of twofold strategy. First of all, closing the Chinese market to Silicon Valley so that you could actually have indigenous champions. And then secondly, massively investing in, in certain sectors with a clear government plan and putting you know billions of dollars into, into AI, into driverless cars into battery technology in different areas. Is that a model for Europe? No, but I think we have to stand back and look at what we see emerging right now. I mean, there are two emergent models in uh, this transformation. One, which is now the subject of all kind of writing, and at the heart of the debates in both Europe and the United States, but Europe doesn't play a role much in this, is the sort of the American Silicon Valley model of surveillance capitalism, which is you make your money by collecting data on everybody and everything and then monetizing that through advertising, which is why when I do a Google search because I wanted to find a chair, for the next two weeks I keep getting... Chair ads adverts. Chair <laughs> Everyone is in count. Then there is the what I would call the emerging or already fully functioning alternative of algorithmic authoritarianism. I mean, a term I use because it's alliterative. (laughs) But it is surveillance capitalism with a strong pipeline to the government. With Chinese characteristics, I suppose. Well, I I mean, the the requirements that uh, the Russian Federation is putting now on the IT sector, they're not different. In fact, uh, already for almost 10 years, there's been a requirement that every Internet service provider uh, that public uses uh, has its pipe go through SORM, which is their sort of surveillance body of the internet. So it's not it's not as if this is a new thing. Uh, they have not been as sophisticated as China has been. But you see this model of surveillance capitalism, but strongly tied to political issues in a number of countries. And so it's not unique to any single country. It is a, it is a way of doing things, and it is a way of countries... With political elites maintaining control through the internet. Now, in this picture, Europe is missing. 
except for one area where, in fact, I mean, I think it's generally positive, but it's fairly limited, is that is, is the conception, this concept regulating privacy, which is embodied in GDPR. GDPR, and that, I think, is a good first step insofar as regulating this mass of data that's being consumed, keeping it from being abused. And it is a model that is now being adopted elsewhere. The, the California State Legislature copy-pasted the European Union's GDPR regulation, much to the chagrin of uh, tech companies. But we don't really see any initiatives on the part of the European Union. We do not have a digital single market, which separates us, by the way, uh, economically, at least is far behind the United States. I take an example, Apple iTunes. I cannot buy an iTunes record for my wife, who is Latvian, because my credit card is in Estonia, and her credit card is in Latvia, even though we live completely elsewhere. But the point is that you cannot even cross this tiny little border in Europe uh, because there is no single market. So it's impossible for Europeans to get scale in order to, to right. become competitive with a Chinese or an American company because right, the market is, is so fragmented. Yes, there's the, there are two issues. One is market fragmentation, and the other one, which is slowly getting better, but it is a cultural and not a legislative matter, is the model of investment. Eighty percent of investment in the European Union from banks and 20% is private equity. It is the opposite in the United States. Now, if you know European banks, as we Europeans do, I present the following uh, apocryphal picture. It didn't really happen. But can you imagine this bearded guy looking like a hippie who has recently declared he thinks bathing is bad? His name is Steve. Steve walks into Deutsche Bank and says, you know, I have this idea. I'm in my garage. I'm building this thing. It's a personal computer. I don't know. I want to call it an apricot, an apple. I'm not sure yet what I want to call it. I mean, he would be frog-marched out of that bank branch of Deutsche Bank within 20 seconds. Whereas when you're Steve Jobs and you get private equity in California, Silicon Valley, you can build a trillion-dollar company. Right. This is really holding us back. Those are really important in terms of stopping Europe's economic disappearance from the world. How does that relate to the to where we started, which was these questions about power and how power is changing? Well, with the inability to actually grow companies, innovative companies that, in so many cases, simply moved to California from Europe, and yeah. I know many cases. Well, you're you're basically creating a, a sort of genuine brain drain. I mean, I know a case. I read in the newspaper when I was president. This uh, this kid, he just graduated college, and he had gotten three hundred thousand dollars for his startup. And I always wanting to encourage people, and they go, okay. so I invited him to tea and get this thing. He goes, well, thank you. I'm sorry, Mr. President, but in uh, two weeks I'm moving to the United States. I said, why are you doing that? I said, well, for one, there's no market here because it's too small. And number two, there's no way I get financing beyond this initial sort of little thing that I got. True to form, he moved to the United States. Six months later, he had $600,000. Another couple of months later, he had 
six million dollars for his company. And two years later, he sold his company for one hundred million dollars. <laughs> Now, fortunately, he's—I uh, mean—he's the kind of person who wants to give back. And actually, with his lot of money that he made, he actually pumped a lot of it back into the educational system of Estonia because he felt that well, this Estonia had enabled him to be a tech star, and so he wanted to help. That's also a rarity, I would say, among people like that. But in any case, the point is that we are losing these people. The product that he creates—it's not a European company; it's an American company, or it was. And now, I mean, I guess it's really an American company because he sold it. We are stifling our chances of competing. Now, on a broader scale, we're doing this as well, which is that when you look at the debates and discussions of. Tech in or in IT in Europe. We focus rightly, but almost exclusively on privacy, which I actually think is a secondary issue. But it's I mean it's not, it's important, I, but it's not the central yeah. one. Yeah. And then we worry about, and we really want to open the market up. And there are all kinds of uh, countries that don't want to open the market up because they're we don't have a single market for digital. And then we have. Long debates on yes or no to 5G from Huawei. But well, given that the only alternatives to Huawei in doing 5G are two European companies, yeah, Ericsson and Nokia. I don't. I mean, there's no initiative. It's it's kind of like we have long discussions saying, what do we say to the United States that wants doesn't want us to buy Huawei? And we say, oh well, we can't do that, or we don't want to do it, or how can they tell us what to do? Latvia has, by the way, has a completely non-Huawei 5G system. But for some reason, you you sit in the middle of Germany and this huge debate over who's. And I don't even want to take sides in this issue because it's the argument seems so pointless uh, that we are arguing over issues of sovereignty about technology that doesn't belong to us, or we're not willing to make a commitment to our own technology. Ultimately, what are we doing? We are looking at This transformation of the digital of society and the world into an information society by focusing on how do we regulate it? a necessary thing to do, but not paying any attention to how do we have it. I mean, if you if you if you listen to the discussions in Europe, main issue is how do we tax them, and them is GAFA or the Fangs, depending on how you, which acronym you want to use, basically. Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, Microsoft. Well, Microsoft, Microsoft's remember. not in there because yeah. Microsoft, as a result of its um, own major difficulties with the European <laughs> Union fifteen uh, years ago, actually is the only American tech company that actually figured this one out and has become very good in dealing with European issues and is a kind of a thought leader. As I mean, it's it's the only company that actually thinks about how we can move ahead. And avoid damage and both the citizens and works with the uh, European Commission and in ways whereas the other ones are just putting money into lobbyists to block legislation. I mean, this is this is not a winner. Now, the, I would say one more thing I would point out here is that I mean, this tech versus policymaker dichotomy. You can feel very strongly in Silicon Valley, but there they're worried about Washington. I mean, the tech companies are not. Don't think about Europe, and this is what has been a shock to me. Europe does not exist since Europe is not a player in the tech world. 
and because, okay, GDPR is something that annoyed some of the, the companies, but there is no policy input from the European side. So if you're sitting in Silicon Valley, you're looking, you're looking westward to China. Then you have this sort of bothersome Congress over there that's doing stuff, but, well, we'll deal with them and we'll put our, our millions into lobbying Congress to make sure they don't do anything stupid. And then when you talk to, I mean, I actually heard a senior executive at one of the large tech companies on a panel that I was on say two things. The first one is, you policy people don't understand anything, and I'm the only one who actually has done policy and knows how to code, to which I learned to code 50 years ago. <laughs> I was 15 when I learned to do that, and I'm, he said that, yeah, you don't understand what we're doing, and all you want to do is regulate us. And there he had a complete point, which is that, I mean, and this goes to something which is, I think, fundamental to the problem we face, which is an essay that I guess is 60 years old this year by a uh, physical chemist and literary novelist named C.P. Snow, who was... Uh, two Cultures. The two Cultures, which he wrote about not thinking about technology. He was talking about sort of the scientists and the literary people at Cambridge, because, and he was the only one who could walk between the two, because he was a physical chemist, and so what do you discuss? Quantum mechanics, I guess, in 1959. And he was a literary novelist who, in fact, invented the term we all use, which is the corridors of power, the title of, uh, I was thought it was Shakespearean, <laughs> and I found out that the corridors of power is invented by Sky, C.P. Snow. And he talks about the fact that the people in science, and today I would say tech, had no interest in what the people sort of in the soft areas were doing. The people in the soft areas were very interested. They lacked the intellectual wherewithal to understand what was going on in science. We see it today. Mark Zuckerberg goes to the U.S. Senate to testify, and the head of the committee, Senator Hatch, asks Mark Zuckerberg, how do you make your money? The, the head of the committee that is dealing with all, all things related to technology does not understand the how business the second business company <laughs> in the world and I think it's actually worse in Europe today, unfortunately, because at least in the United States, the presence of so many huge companies such as Apple and Facebook and Google forces at least the staffers, if not the members of Congress, to know something about it. We don't even have that here because there are only foreign companies that play a role in Europe, no domestic companies. And so the whole approach is protectionist. Let's see how we can break up those American tech companies. With no attention paid to Chinese tech companies. No one's trying to break them up. There's no creative, innovative, positive approach in Europe to dealing with these issues, and certainly not even for eliminating the most basic obstacles to tech growth in Europe, which is the fragmentation of the market. President Ilves, you obviously are the CP Snow of our age, managing to unite these two worlds in a completely unique way, I think. And I think when you were president, you lived that new unity which you're talking about. We're running out of time on this podcast, but maybe I can ask you one last question. We often end our podcast with a bookshelf segment. If people wanted to, if policymakers wanted to start to fill in some of the gaps in their knowledge, what two or three things do you think they should start with if they want to understand how the digital world is going to change the policy world and if they want to get beyond a simple 
defensive quest to break up and regulate rather than um, trying to shape this world we're now living in. Okay, first of all, we, there's a topic we didn't even discuss, which is how democracy is going to survive the tech world, beginning with hacking and crypto to dissemination of fake news via social media. If we had a longer podcast, I would have talked even longer about that. <laughs> Because that's a lot of what my work has been sort of uh, studying. Can you talk briefly about that? Well, I mean, again, what we see is that, you know, the, the role of everything from hacking to social media has been weaponized. In 2011 with Tahrir Square, everyone was agog over the, my God, look, we can use social media to bring down tyrants. Well, then the tyrants looked and said, hmm, they're talking about how civil society can have this huge effect with no money, just using Twitter and Facebook. But we got money. We don't have civil society. We can do an even better job. That's, I think, is what the, the difference is between then and now, is that authoritarian regimes with a, an international agenda said, hmm, if these people out there, just with their Twitter on Facebook, can bring down across the Arab world regimes, what can we do when we put in the full force of the state into doing the same thing? And so we've gotten to a point where every single country in Europe with, I mean, I'm looking only at open source, I think that every single country, except for, to my knowledge, Portugal, but may have dismissed it, in Europe, plus the United States and Canada, have been attacked either by APT28 or APT29, which are two hacking groups from Russia, or and or the so-called Internet Research Agency, a troll farm in Petersburg. All of them, you know, the, the German Bundestag, the Italian Foreign Ministry, the German Foreign Ministry, the Dutch Foreign Ministry. It's even gotten to twice the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, which has been hacked by the Russians. And first time it was hacked, and, the second, and now recently we found out they were trying to put or fake documents that are in their files. They attacked the Macron election, you know, and they put in fake documents in there too. I mean, so then they say, oh, look what we hacked. I don't even need to go into either the Brexit referendum where no one wants to talk about things or the U.S. election of 2016. So this is upending our democracy. I would say on that area, there's a very good book called Like War by Peter Singer. On the uh, surveillance capitalism side, I would say, well, it's big, big, fat book. Right. So Shona Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. It's the really, Das Kapital of Surveillance Capitalism. Well, it, I mean, it's actually the problem with it is things, it's changing so rapidly that much of what we find in those two books, which I would say are sort of good introductions, will have been superseded in a, a year or two. What the U.S. elections coming up got to a point where, first of all, people are disseminating fake information themselves. We don't need anyone from the outside to do it or just need to seed it and it's done by us. And just raising doubts about the validity of elections, which we did not see before 2016, is enough to, I mean, you can basically delegitimize an election these days simply by raising doubts about whether or not it was hacked, whereas no one in the past ever been it was an election hack. I mean, there's so many books out today on this that uh, just plow into them. And of course, a final reading suggestion, just because it is, it, I think it defines the problem we face, is download a 60-page essay, which is about a completely different world, but it is The Two Cultures by C.P. Snow, where you see the first time someone actually looked at the problem of these two different ways of looking at the world and doing things 
when he wrote the essay, we were living in a world in which if you walked out the door, your telephone was attached to the wall and no one knew where you were. <laughs> and when you looked at television, despite George Orwell, the te television was not looking at you. Whereas today, where you are at any point in time, if you have a mobile phone, is known to somebody and probably a lot of people. And uh, when you uh, are looking at your computer screen, on, uh, unless you tape over the camera, it can be looking at you. And unless you sort of plug up the microphone, which no one does, it can be listening to you talking. So we live in a surveillance-filled world that C.P. Snow could not have even have imagined. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating discussion. We'll put links up to all the publications that President Ilvers mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please um, let other people know about it by writing on your social media page or ours, and above all, giving us a rating and review on the platform that you use to download this podcast. But for now, from President Ilvers and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hachenbrosch and our editor is Marlene Rieger.